Amen. All right. Well, hey, to start things off, how many of you guys have ever run across somebody for, I don't know, lack of a better term, uh, whose cheese has done slid off their cracker? You know what I'm saying? You ever met one of those folks? Okay. And I got to thinking about this. I thought, you know, hey, they keep coming out with all these nifty devices. Uh, wouldn't it be cool if somehow you can get some sort of a heads up, a forewarning that one of these folks is coming your way? Wouldn't that be kind of nice? A little benefit there? Well, that's right, folks, because I love you, I'm here to help you out. You see, I came across a list of some surefire signs to indicate when one of these surefire way people, they're special people, John, they're, they're heading your way. There's some signs to indicate that. Let's see if we can uh, follow what those signs are today. Uh, here's one. One guy actually said this. He said, my wife and I moved from Texas to California, and our house was full of boxes. And there was a U-Haul truck in our dri- driveway, and so my neighbor comes over and he says, hey, you moving? <laughs> I said, nope, we just pack up our boxes once or twice a week to see how many boxes it's going to take. Okay? Okay, here's your sign. That person's uh, kind of special there. Another guy said this. He said, a couple months ago, I went fishing with a buddy of mine, and we pulled his boat up in the dock, and I lifted up this big old stringer of bass on the dock, and another fellow comes up, and he says, hey, you catch all those fish? <laughs> I said, nope, we just talked him into giving up. <laughs> Here's your sign. That guy's pretty special there. Uh, here's another one. He says, hey, listen, I was driving around and I had a flat tire. So I pulled my truck into one of those side-of-the-road gas stations and the attendant walks out and he looks at my truck and he says, tire go flat? I said, nope. I was driving around and those other three just swelled right up on me. <laughs> Hate it when that happens. There's your sign. Uh, another man said this, hey, listen, I got me this nice deer this year while I was out hunting. So I hung it up on the wall in the den of my house and neighbor comes over and he says, do you shoot that thing? I said, nope. Uh, he ran through the back wall and got stuck. <laughs> Been there ever since. Here's your sign there, Arthur. Uh, another guy said this. True story. He said this. He says, I was in L.A. and I got stuck behind a big rig truck that wedged his trailer up underneath an overpass. And me and the truck driver are waiting on the side of the road for the tow truck driver to come. And I kid you not, he said the highway patrolman pulls up, looks at the guy's rig. He looks at back at the trucker. He actually said this. Did you get your truck stuck? And without missing a beat, the truck driver said, nope, I was delivering that overpass and I ran out of gas. <laughs> Here's your sign. That guy's pretty special, Paul. You know what I'm saying? But uh, as you guys can see, uh, there's all kinds of signs to indicate when one of these special people are headed your way. You know, a little heads up there. Uh, they're all over the place, okay? But to me, folks, one of the biggest signs you're running across one of these kind of people is, believe it or not, when you go to church services on Resurrection Sunday. Okay, I'm telling you, it happens all the time, okay? And here's what they do, okay? You walk up to one of these folks and you ask them, what is Resurrection Sunday all about, okay? And and why you're here, and they say, I don't know. We always come to Resurrection Sunday or Easter, whatever you want to call it, right? We always come this Sunday, right? And folks, here's my point. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're glad you're here, okay? Uh, But here's your sign, something weird is about to take place. Okay, you're about to miss out on one of the most profound truths ever recorded for us in the Bible, and today is the day we celebrate it, okay? But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, let's take a look here. And if you find 2 Corinthians, what do you do? Hang your left, right on. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 19. Of course, as you turn there, this is the famous resurrection chapter. You want to know about the uh, resurrection of Jesus? Here it is. Read this chapter amongst many other passages, okay? But this is the infamous passage, and you tell me if there's something important going on here. You don't want to miss out on this fantastic biblical truth. But here's what the scripture says to you and I. Paul speaking here, he says this to the Corinth church. He says, now brother... I want to remind you of the gospel, which means good news, I preach to you, which you've received and on which you've taken your what? Your stand. Okay, it all hinges on this. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. 
For what I received, I pass on to you as the what? Key phrase here, first importance. Here it is, number one, numero uno, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and here's your proof. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or had died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul says, as one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles. And I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No. He says, I worked harder than all of them. Yet it's not I. I'm not boasting in me. It's the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, he says, here's the point. It was I or they. It doesn't matter. This is what we preach and this is what you believed on. Now, here's the problem. He said, but stop and think about this. If it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how in the world can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He said, think, about, think this through, in other words. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is, listen, what? It's useless and so is your faith. More than that, we've been found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Listen, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they're lost. He says, in fact, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Okay? And folks, this is the classic passage. It tells us why this resurrection day thing is a huge issue. And Paul, in a nutshell, is basically saying the resurrection is the crux of the gospel. In other words, you can't have a gospel, you can't have a good news without the resurrection, right? That's what he's saying there. Why? Because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then guess what, Christian? Neither will you. Your faith would be futile and you are doomed. You're still headed to hell. But the good news is he did rise from the dead. Your faith is not futile and you're no longer doomed if you're a Christian. The resurrection, Paul says, is massively important. That's why he dedicated a whole chapter to it. And that's why he used the phrase there of first importance. You want to get a biblical truth? Make sure you get this one. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, hinges on this very truth. Okay? But let's go even beyond that. Let's talk about how much more good news there is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stop and think about it. The resurrection, the fact that Jesus really did rise again from the grave, shows that the claims that Jesus made about himself are true. Right? That Jesus, he said, he is God in the flesh, he's the Messiah who came to save the world from the penalty of sin, namely hell, and that he's the only way uh, to heaven. He is the only way out of this mess. Here's the point. If Jesus predicted that he would rise again from the grave, and he did then logically you can trust the other claims that he made, right? That he's the Messiah, the only way to heaven. You can trust everything if he predicted that and it came true. But on the other hand, if Jesus stayed dead in the tomb, then it would be foolish to believe his claims that he was the Messiah and the only way to heaven, right? But the fact is he did rise from the dead. Therefore, listen, it would be foolish not to believe What he says, when Jesus speaks, he is the truth. He doesn't lie. He is trustworthy. The resurrection demonstrates that what Jesus says, you can bank on it. Okay? The second thing the resurrection shows us is the uniqueness of Jesus that, hello, he is God. 
Okay, and this is just one passage that clearly speaks about this, folks. Let's take a look at that. And that's here, John chapter 20, verse 26 through 28. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. This is after the resurrection. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. Okay, and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas, of course, said to him, my Lord and my God. Folks, that's just one of the most obvious passages, and that's not the only one. There's tons of them in the scripture that teaches that Jesus Christ is not just Lord. He is what? He is God. He is God in the flesh. You want to see the Father? Look at Jesus. I and the Father, he says, are one. You want to see what God looks like? Look at Jesus. That's what he's saying there. And this is the point. Is this what other religions teach? Is there nothing unique about the deity of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you some questions. Is Buddha God? Is Confucius God? How about Muhammad? Then how in the world can our society say that Jesus Christ is no different than those other guys? The resurrection demonstrates the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, that he is God. And as God, Jesus demonstrated that by doing what only God can do, and he raised himself from the dead. Hello, and this is in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, speaking of his body. He says, and who? I, Jesus said, will raise it again in three days. Put it to the test. Did Buddha raise himself from the dead? Did Confucius? How about Muhammad? No, but Jesus Christ did. Why? Because he is God. The resurrection demonstrates that. This is why Paul says this whole thing is everything. It's of first importance. You can trust Jesus and you can see that Jesus is totally unique. He is God in the flesh. One more, the resurrection also shows no other religions teach this, folks, the uniqueness of Jesus and that Jesus Christ is the forgiver. He is the forgiver of some of our sin. Praise God, he said it's finished. Hello, he forgives us all of our sins. And this is in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Simply says this, salvation is found in any religion, any path you want to pick. No, no one else is what he says. Therefore, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. In other words, it's only in the name of Jesus Christ. So again, here's the point. Put it to the test. Did Buddha forgive us of our sins? Did Confucius go to the cross? How about Muhammad? Absolutely not. He didn't die for us, but Jesus Christ did, which means he really is the only way to heaven. This is why he made it so clear, folks, in John 14, 6, Jesus didn't say, I'm one of the many ways that you could truth uh, pick. I'm not one of the many truths that you can decide on yourself out there. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in case you still don't get it, nobody comes to the Father except through him. I didn't say that he did. Okay, that's what Jesus said. Why? Because Jesus Christ, unlike the other guys, is the only one who went to the cross for us. He is the only one who rose again from the grave. Therefore, he is, in fact, the only way to get to heaven. Which means, pay attention, Buddhism can't save you. Islam can't save you. Mormonism can't save you. Catholicism can't save you. Humanism can't save you. Self-help can't save you. New Age can't save you. Yourself can't save you. But Jesus Christ can and he will if you would just call upon his name. That's why it's called the good news. That's why Paul says in this passage, the resurrection, it's just a Christian doctrine you have to believe on to check, to get into the church. What? No. This thing is of first importance. Jesus Christ is the only one who's risen from the dead. The other guys are still stuck in their tombs. Muhammad is still dead. Buddha's gone. Confucius is stuck in the dirt. But Jesus Christ is alive today. 
And Paul says, listen, this isn't just some, you know, again, question. This, everything hinges on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, listen, this is huge. If you want to say there's no big deal about the resurrection, it didn't happen, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is what? You are futile and you are still in your sins, which is a bad problem. In other words, if you were to actually say, like some people in our society say, that Jesus was no different than us, that he sinned just like you and us, okay, you and I, okay, and that he's no different than those other guys, okay, Larry and Curly, okay, uh, then uh, he would have been still stuck in the grave because uh, sin uh, would give the grave the ability to keep a hold of him. But because Jesus, listen, had no sin, the grave couldn't keep him there. The reason why we and people in general die today is because we sin today. This is why the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin, what do you get for sinning? What's the payday? Die. You deserve to die. I deserve to die and go straight into hell. But praise God, the gift of life is eternal life through Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord. Okay. And that's why we die today. But since there was no sin in Jesus, death could not keep him there. There was no wages to give. So he was able to rise again from the grave, which means Jesus Christ's death was therefore, in fact, acceptable to God as complete full payment for all of our sins. He took the death penalty in our place against our crimes against God. And he extends to anyone on the planet, if you would just receive it, the gift of eternal life. Because he rose again from the grave, this is why all day today, somebody should have to come up to you and slap that smile off your face. Because it means that our crimes against God have been completely exonerated and taken away through Jesus Christ on the cross. And the resurrection proves that fact now. Okay? That's why, again, Paul says, don't miss this. The resurrection is not just a theological truth. It's of first importance. Everything hinges on this. Everything we believe in. Now here's the problem. As amazing as that truth is, okay, people today, even in the church, would downplay the resurrection of Jesus and act like it's no big deal or so why? Like it's no big spiritual truth. Or, or worse yet, they'll turn it into something like a, the Easter bunny or chocolate eggs or something like that. Or you'll even have people who just flat out reject it and say, nah, that's not possible. That can't happen. Therefore, I wanted to take a look at the solid proof that the resurrection not only did occur, but as we're going to see, historically, this is the most well-proven historical event in the history of mankind. Did you know that? Let's take a look at some of that proof. And that first proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead uh, is the female proof, okay? The female proof, okay? You see, whether you realize it or not, again, folks, if the resurrection, if you were going to play the role of the skeptic, if the resurrection were, not, were just a bunch of baloney, i.e. these guys just made it up, okay, to keep Christianity going, then the last thing you would ever have done, if it were a hoax, is to use women as your witnesses, okay? And that's because in Bible times, listen, in Bible times, women were considered second-class citizens. In fact, their testimony wasn't even allowed in court, okay? Yet the Bible says Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene and other holy women after the resurrection. And this is what we see in just this passage, John chapter 20, verse 1 and 11 through 14. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Then they asked her, woman, why are you crying? 
And she said, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw who? Jesus standing there. And again, this is the importance of this being recorded for us. Given the cultural mandate towards women at the time, if the resurrection were just a hoax, you wouldn't have recorded that. You would not have included the testimony of a woman, period, let alone Mary Magdalene, who was formerly known as a formerly demon-possessed woman. If it were a hoax, that's crazy to use that as a witness. You'd have used a male witness. Somebody, if it were a hoax, like a Joseph of Arimathea, who was already identified as the tomb's owner. He was already a male who was already respected. If it were a hoax, you would use that, logically, given the cultural mandate towards women at the day. But that's not what we see. By using the account of a woman proves it was not a hoax, but a literal account of the event, just like it happened, even if the culture didn't approve of it, and the male writers had to write it down because God said it and God doesn't lie. Okay? The female witness is huge, folks. It's a literal account. The second proof is the location proof. Okay? And stop and think about this one, okay? If the resurrection, again, were a hoax, okay, they're just making this up, then the last thing you would do if you were the disciples is to go right back immediately into the exact same city where Jesus was just killed. Right? And the reason why is because if the body was still in the tomb and you're making this up, then anybody in that same city who just saw Jesus being killed right next to the tomb, could go right out to the tomb, check on it, look at it, and laugh this whole thing off. If it were a host, you would expect these guys to start in some faraway city, like Athens or Rome, where nobody could check it out, right? And help get the rumor started. But that's not what we see. They went right back into Jerusalem, right where Jesus was just killed, and starts preaching the resurrection, in essence saying, hey, fine, go check it out for yourself. The tomb's right over there. There's nothing there. Check it out. And that's why one guy states this. He said, the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for one single day, not even for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established for all concern. Right? Female proof, location proof, and this is huge if you stop and think about it, the silence proof. Why didn't you put a stop to it? You had your opportunity, you could have, but you didn't do that. Okay? Now, again, the point with this one is the Roman and the Jewish leaders at the time were just a little bit hostile towards the Christian faith. Uh, they just put Jesus to death. Okay, it's pretty hostile. Okay, and so here's your point. Here's your opportunity. If the resurrection were not true and Jesus was still in the tomb and this is just some big lie, then here's your ultimate opportunity to squelch and destroy Christianity once and for all. You could have just produced the body. That's it. Put an end to it. But these guys, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, were silent. Silent. Even when Peter, in public, makes statements like this. Let's take a look at this. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Men of Israel, Peter said, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You were there. You saw it. Okay? He said, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But it didn't end there. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, i.e., because Jesus didn't sin. And again, here's the point. If, in other words, what's going on here, listen, is here is your opportunity. Why didn't right then and there, the Jewish people that Peter is talking to, why didn't they just silence Peter? Why didn't they whip out the body of Jesus Christ for everybody to see, say, hey, this is a hoax, this guy's a liar, shut him up. But they didn't. Why? 
because the body wasn't there. There was nothing they could produce to say that it was a lie. In fact, the only thing they could come up with is a lie. And that lie is actually recorded for us in the Bible. This is the only thing. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, uh, find the body, so they lied. Matthew 28, verse 11 through 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that happened. Uh-oh, he's gone. Whoa, no. So here's what they did. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's not just money, a large sum. And a double insurance policy uh, telling them, uh, you're to say his disciples uh, came uh, during the night and stole him away uh, while you guys were sleeping. And and if this report gets to the governor, uh, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We'll see why in a second. So the soldiers took the money and they did as they were instructed. They lied. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews even to this very day. Okay, now stop and think about this. In other words, the only thing that these guys could come up with to explain away the empty tomb was a lie about the empty tomb. Right? Think about it. Which proves that even the Jewish leaders admit that it was empty. Right? If there was something to grab, why do you lie? The fact that you had to produce a lie admits that you yourselves know it was empty. You get it? Absolutely amazing. The fourth proof is the excuse proof. Okay? You see, because the resurrection is such a well-established fact, okay, believe it or not, that people have not only lied about it to try to explain it away, but they've come up with some pretty lame excuses to try to explain it away. And I only got time for a couple. I'm going to hit the most popular ones. And the first one that they try to come up with is that uh, Jesus just faked it. You know what I'm saying? He just faked it, you know, his body, and he just snuck out. Okay, this is what's actually called the swoon theory. Or in other words, they say that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. No, no, no. He just swooned. He, he fainted. He fainted on the cross. He looked like he was dead. But as soon as he was placed in that tomb, the coldness of the tomb, the, tomb, uh, the coldness of the stone there in the tomb, oh, revived him. Right? And, and he wakened and then he snuck past the guards. That's what happened. Actually very popular, unfortunately, today in the skeptics. But first of all, let's examine that. First of all, nobody is going to revive themselves naturally after what Jesus went through on the cross, let alone sneak past the Roman guards in that kind of shape, okay? Jesus, in the context, just spent a sleepless, emotionally exhausting night before he was beaten and scourged and nailed to the cross, which means physically, just laying yourself on some cold stone ain't going to revive you to sneak past some guards. It was a horrific experience being crucified, okay? Let's take a look at just what Jesus went through uh, for you and I. Let's take a look. I believe that Christ's suffering uh, and the demonstration of the kind of um, a physiologic stress that his human body was under uh, is manifested in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's described that he was sweating blood. And there are there is a well-documented uh, medical condition in which patients who are under tremendous amount of uh, emotional stress and physiological stress can in fact uh, sweat blood because little blood vessels within the glands burst and, the, and then the blood is expressed. The, the, the scourge involved the use of a, a short whip with pieces of uh, typically metal, sometimes bone, sometimes pieces of porcelain wrapped in these leather straps which is then utilized to, to come across uh, typically the back, the shoulders, the legs of the victim. Uh, and uh, the first few passes across a particular body part would tear through the skin, the fat, 
but eventually, once the outer layers were, were uh, torn away, it would start getting in the muscle and the tendon. And of course, along the way, you're ripping through all the blood vessels that supply all those tissues. And so you're losing blood the whole time. The plant that was described um, uh, actually had a very long thorn, um, not the little thorns that we would think from a rose bush. These were thorns that were uh, typically an inch and a half to two inches in length. The scalp is one of the most vascular portions of our bodies. It had a huge blood supply up there. So then having those thorns shoved down into the, you know, down onto the bony plate would have gone through all the scalp which in and of itself would have created a huge amount of blood loss. Uh, I've seen people actually bleed to death from just a scalp injury. So uh, it's not a small injury to have, uh, who knows, dozens uh, of these things shoved into your scalp. And so that would have caused more blood loss. Anatomically, we consider the wrists as part of the hand. And so, uh, with the placement of the nails between the radius and the ulna at that position it, it still fits, fits the definition of being in the hand and it's in a position in which the nail won't rip out which you have to have you have to have a solid point of fixation uh, another interesting point about the placement of that is the median nerve goes right straight through that particular uh, 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 portion of the wrist and so there would have been uh, either destruction of the nerve or impingement of the nerve that would have created a tremendous amount of pain so that every time you try to take a breath, you'd be, it'd be agonizing. You'd be pushing down on spiked feet, which of course hurt, and then you'd be hanging on spiked arms. And so you alternate from excruciating pain to excruciating pain every time you take a breath. In other words, crucifixion is a horrific experience. And you are not going to be revived by just being placed on a cold surface after that event. In fact, to put the nail in the coffin, no pun intended, we know medically that Jesus did not faint. We know medically, and it's recorded for us in the scripture, that he did in fact die. And that's the importance of this passage of scripture that tells us the medical terminology. John chapter 19, verse 34 through 35. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and it brought forth a sudden flow of what? Not just blood, but blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus Christ really did die on the cross, not faint. Why? Because we now know this today, that medically, when you see blood and water come forth from somebody's body, if you produce a cavity in the body, it's a medical sign that the person really is dead. When rigor mortis sets in, that's when the blood and the water begin to separate. If Jesus Christ was still alive and he just fainted, then we would have just been blood. But the scripture tells us it was blood and water. In other words, he really was dead. He wasn't faking it and it wasn't just a faint job. He died there. Okay. The second excuse that people come up with is, okay, well maybe Jesus didn't fake it, but uh, we all know the disciples just stole it. Really? Okay. And this is what people actually, I remember this in first year secular uh, college in psychology or uh, philosophy class. And this is actually what my professor would say. He said that his whole theory about Christianity was that the uh, disciples, they stole Jesus' body just to keep this Christianity thing going. I mean, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, they had a good thing going. They were creating this new religion on the planet. You can earn a lot of cash with that. And their leader up and went and died on them. 
So, hey, let's keep it going by stealing his body and perpetuating. Anybody hear that stuff? It's actually still popular today, as you can uh, uh, see today, especially on the History Channel, or the uh, Heresy Channel, I like to call it. Okay, and uh, when it comes to the Bible, anyway, I always want to pick on that. Uh, but first of all, any serious scholar today laughs off this assertion. It's absolutely ridiculous when you look at the facts. It is ludicrous to say, listen, that the disciples could have even attempted to steal Jesus' body. And that's because there is zero evidence at this time that the disciples had any ounce of courage to take on a whole Roman guard armed to the hilt. Are you kidding me? In fact, the scripture says these guys were a bunch of chicken livers at this time. Okay, this is just one passage. Matthew 26, uh, 56 says, Then all the disciples, how many of them? All the disciples deserted him, Jesus, and they fled. They were chicken livers, okay? They ran. And then, of course, we know the account of Peter. He denied Jesus three times, and one of those denials was in front of a little girl. Ooh, tough guy. Right? This is what we see in the scriptures, okay? These guys are not going to take on a whole Roman guard, okay? We don't have evidence of that prior to the resurrection. In fact, what's crazier is that a Roman law demanded that anybody who broke a Roman seal and that was placed on the tomb, they would automatically be executed by being crucified upside down. The disciples at this time being chicken livers and nobody is going to break that Roman seal. Okay. In fact, even if you wanted to say that the soldiers fell asleep, listen, Another Roman law stated that if a soldier did fall asleep on duty, you were instantly punished with death. Okay? And that's why, as we saw in the previous passage, the Jewish officials didn't just bribe these guys. Here's a couple bucks to lie. What did it say? Large sum. They had to give these guys a massive amount of cash. Because their life was on the line. And then they had to give them the double reassurance that, oh, by the way, we'll set it up politically so that they don't follow through with Roman law to execute you for this lie. Right? That's why we have that recorded. But even then, how plausible is it for all the soldiers to fall asleep all at the same time? Right? You ever have a bunch of guys in a room go camping? You ever get that one guy that... And you want to go to sleep. You are praying desperately to go to sleep. But you ain't going to sleep. Nobody's going to sleep with that guy. He's the only one getting some sleep, right? I mean, what are the odds that all the soldiers, all of them fell asleep all at the same time? Crazy, okay? When, by the way, if any one of them fell asleep, you're dead. You're executed. Give me a break, okay? And then you want to say that somehow they all fell asleep with their lives on the line. Every single one of them. And nobody was a snorer, okay? And then the disciples just snuck in there being chicken livers, and rolled this huge, massive stone away, and nobody woke up? Okay? Uh, folks, that stone was huge. That's recorded for us. That stone was anywhere from one and a half to two tons. Okay? And after the resurrection, it's described as, listen, not just rolled away a little peak so they could sneak through there. The scripture says it was rolled away up away from the entire massive sepulcher in such a position that it looked like supernaturally just been boom, popped over there. It's because it was a supernatural event. But if you're going to say that the disciples who were chicken livers at this point somehow tiptoed past the guards who somehow all happened to fall asleep all the same time even with their lives on the line rolled that giant two-ton stone away picked it up, moved it over here stole Jesus' body and nobody woke up I'm sorry, you got more faith than I do. That's ridiculous, okay? Plus, here's another aspect of guys. Ladies, you can confirm this. 
How, how silent are guys when they're trying to be silent in the morning? <laughs> the look tells it all, right, honey? <laughs> Give me a break, okay? It makes no sense. In fact, it's nonsense. It's a lame excuse just to try to prove the resurrection away. But that's not the fifth proof that Jesus really did rise again from the grave is the witness proof, okay? And this is the importance of our opening text where it didn't say Jesus rose from the dead and he didn't just appear to a couple people. It specifically said he appeared one of the times to more than 500 people all at the same time. Okay, and that's this passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. Uh, Again, the opening text. For what I received, I passed on to you as of what? First importance. This is important. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep or in other words have died. In other words most of them are still living. In other words you can go ask them. Talk to them. They're still here. Go check it out for yourself. Pick one of the 500 okay. But here's the point. Put it in the modern vernacular. If you and I were to have gotten up today and read the uh, uh, newspaper here in Las Vegas and the front headline said 500 people witnessed an accident yesterday between a red car and a blue car on the corner of Nellis and Lake Mead, would it make any sense for any one of us here today to say, no, that didn't happen. No, there's no way that could be possible. You guys are making that up. That's a hoax. That would be ridiculous, right? 500 witnesses all at the same time makes it an established fact. Well, folks, that's what we got with the resurrection. And yet people deny it today. Excuse me? More than 500 people saw it at one time. There was others that saw it, but there was one instance more than 500. Okay, and again, most of them were still alive at the time, which means you can go still talk to them. Go check it out for yourself. And yet people want to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Or they'll say this... It was a mass hallucination. First of all, it's ridiculous. Okay? In fact, even, believe it or not, secular psychologists admit that when it comes to hallucinations, it doesn't work that way. 500 people don't have the exact same hallucination at the exact same time. It doesn't work that way. That's ludicrous. Even they will admit that. Okay? You're just still trying to explain it away. In fact, We even have secular historical documents outside the Bible that not only talk about Jesus, but they even mention his resurrection as a literal encounter. Talk about a newspaper reporter. Let's look at some of the newspaper reporters outside the Bible in history. They they saw this, folks, event. The first one's Josephus. He was a first century Jewish historian. Okay, and he wrote about Jesus. Okay, he, okay, he said about that time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a, a, a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared even to this day. Outside the Bible, that's a secular historical document. Check it out for yourself. Josephus. He was a Jewish reporter of the day. One of the greatest Jewish historians, if you understand, 
uh, their history, okay? But that's not the only one. Here's the, another guy, a Greek guy. Thallus, he was a historian, lived in the middle of the first century AD. He wrote around 52 AD about the darkness that fell during the crucifixion of Jesus. And here's what he said. On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. That's what a Greek reporter was saying in the newspaper of the day, outside of the scripture. In fact, I don't have time to go into all of them. There are at least 42 different authors that mention Jesus when, within 150 years of his life, outside the Bible. 42. Okay? And you contrast this to only 10 authors that mention Tiberius Caesar within 150 years of his life, who was the Roman emperor during Jesus' ministry, and yet nobody questions his existence and the legitimacy of the facts reported about him. Why not? Jesus has got way more evidence than you. And people want to doubt Jesus, okay? Facts, folks, the facts are this. Jesus not only appears all over the Bible, he appears all over secular documents outside the Bible like you would expect if the resurrection and his existence was literal. That's what you see when you do the homework. And that's why this guy, Professor Thomas Arnold, he wrote, if you're into history, the famous book, History of Rome. He's from Oxford. I guess you say it that way. He said this, listen, listen. He said, for many years I have studied the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who've written about them. And I know, listen, he says, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has proved better and fuller evidence of any sort and every sort than that Christ died and rose again from the grave. No other event in history. Has this much evidence. Another English scholar, uh, a guy named Brooke Ruscott, he said this, raking all the evidence together, it's not too much to say there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I translate that for you? They know, even secular historians, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his existence on earth is the most well-documented event in the history of mankind. And yet people still want to scoff at it. And this is why when you finally get around to examining the evidence. And not being somebody like I used to be. I'd sit here as a non-Christian and be the first one to say. This book is a book whipped up by man to brainwash you. It's full of errors. Did I ever get into it and even read it? I was being the hypocrite. When you finally get around to looking at the evidence. You see. It really did occur. And hopefully you start to catch his meaning. Like this guy. This is the world's leading legal mind. And he was challenged to finally look at the evidence. See what happened to him. His name was Simon Greenleaf. Let's take a look. Greenleaf in his day, and he lived through the latter half and in, of the 19th century and into the 20th century, was the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard. He was declared to be the greatest expert on evidence that the world had ever known. Now, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said that Greenleaf's testimony is the most basic and compelling testimony that can be accepted in any English-speaking court in the world. When Greenleaf spoke on legal evidences, that settled the matter. He was far and away the most knowledgeable person on evidence that the world had ever known. The London Times said that more light on jurisprudence had come from Greenleaf than from all the jurists of Europe combined. Now, 
the Greenleaf had one, as some of you know, had one inviolable principle in his classrooms at Harvard. And that was you never make up your mind about any significant matter without first considering the evidence. And Greenleaf was not a Christian. He was, in fact, a Jew. He did not believe in Christianity. He did not believe in Christ. He did not believe in the resurrection. And one day, the subject of religion came up, as it often did. You should remember that law is based upon ethics, and ethics and morals are based upon religion. And they were discussing religion and the resurrection of Christ when he made the statement he didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. And one student with uh, some degree of uh, boldness raised his hand and said, Yes, but Professor, have you considered the evidence? No, he had not. He was aghast. He had lost enough face to depopulate China. Uh, and uh, he decided to make such an investigation, and he investigated every single thread of evidence on Christ and the resurrection of Christ in particular, and he finally wrote a book, which I was perusing uh, this afternoon, uh, again, entitled The Testimony of the Evangelists, being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he concluded that if the the question of the resurrection of Christ and the evidence for the resurrection of Christ were presented to any unbiased jury in the world, they would have to conclude that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead. And Simon Greenleaf became a believer in the resurrection. He became a believer in Christ. Why? Because when you stop pointing fingers and you get around to considering the evidence... You can't help but see that the resurrection is, in fact, the most well-documented event in history. And if it were to actually go to court, hands down, it existed. It happened. It's ludicrous to say it's not. Which brings us to the sixth and final proof that Jesus really did rise again from the grave. And that's the change proof. This is huge, folks. How do you explain this one away? Now, we've already talked about the disciples prior to the resurrection. They were a bunch of chicken livers, okay? But if you continue to read after the resurrection, these guys were transformed. They were turned into some of the most bravest, most determined guys you ever saw. They would instantly take on anybody and everybody and not even think about shrinking back about declaring the resurrection. Let me give you just one example that's recorded for us in the scripture. And this is in the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 13, 18 through 20. When they saw the courage, the what? They're not chicken livers anymore. The courage of Peter and John. And they realized they were unschooled, ordinary guys. They didn't even go to seminary. Right? They were astonished. And they took note that these men had what? They had been with Jesus. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they said, okay, we won't. No. But Peter and John says, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. In other words, you can threaten us all you want, but we're going to keep on preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the point. What in the world changed in these guys? How did they go? It was an instantaneous change. How did they go from being total chicken livers to spiritual Arnold Schwarzeneggers? Right? Because that's overnight. Well, I got a theory and it goes like this. They really did see Jesus Christ rise from the dead. And when you see Jesus Christ face to face, it'll change you. 
In fact, it was such a drastic change and they believed in what they saw and heard that they even put their very lives on the line. Let's take a look real quick at how the apostles uh, died. Let's take a look. Uh, first of all, James, the brother of John, he was beheaded. Uh, Thomas was run through the body with the lance. Uh, Simon, the brother of Jude, was crucified in Egypt. Simon, the zealot, was crucified. Mark was burned and buried after being dragged through the uh, streets. Bartholomew was beaten, skinned alive, crucified, and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed by a spear. Philip was stoned and then crucified. James was thrown off the temple. He survived, church history says. Then they clubbed him to death. And uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree. Jude was shot to death by arrows. Matthias was first stoned. Then they beheaded him. Barnabas was stoned to death. And the apostle John was put into a cauldron of boiling oil, but survived and later is the only one to die a natural death of the apostles. Now here's the point. If the resurrection were a lie, if these guys just whooped this baby up as a hoax just to keep this Christianity thing going, Do you think that every single one of those saved John would die a horrible death like that? Oh, by the way, he was John tortured. Do you really think that every single one of them would willingly submit to being killed like that? I mean, if it were a lie, logically, you would expect somewhere, somehow, some one of them, at least one of them, Somewhere along the line would have cracked and at least one of these guys would have said something like this. Okay, hey, you got me. Sorry. I was just kidding. <laughs> yeah, resurrection, resurrection. All right, yeah, we had a good thing going. Okay, hey, whatever you do, don't crucify me. Don't drag me through the streets. And please don't chop my head off and skin me alive. I made it up. If it really were a lie, don't you think one of them would have said that? But that's not what we see. You don't die for a lie, let alone like that. Every single one of them, save John who was tortured, died a horrible death. Why? Because the resurrection really did happen. And they really saw him with their own eyes. They heard him with his own ears. And they put their lives on the line for it. For you and I today. Anybody glad? Absolutely. Okay. When they saw Jesus, he changed them just like that. As we close, can I tell you something? He still does it today. He still does it today. Folks, he, he can change you. He changed me. 21 years ago this day, I woke up drunk on the floor with all kinds of drugs coursing through my veins. By that afternoon, God took this former ex-headbanger, drug addict, sexual moral, male chauvinist pig guy involved in the occult, hater of Christians and Christianity, and now I'm up here preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. And here's the good news. If you even here today would just come to Jesus, ask Him to forgive you of all of your sins, believe in your heart that God did raise Him from the grave, He'll change you too. He'll forgive you and He'll do what only God can do and He'll do something new and something splendid with your life and cleanse you from all the dirt and the shame and the sin that you've accumulated like He did with these people. We'll close in prayer after this. How do I know? I know because I was restless. How do I know? Because I was wild. Because I was addicted. I was lost. Because I was empty. I know because I was living behind a mask. 
How do I know Jesus is alive? Because he lives in me. Jesus did what no one else could do for me. He took the punishment. For my failures. My wrong decisions. My selfishness. My pride. And my sin. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tortured. Crucified. And buried for me. But on the third day. He did exactly what he said he would do. Jesus rose up. And walked right out of the tomb. In the summer of 1985. July of 2007. February 2005. June 2003. And in August 1995. He walked into my life. And I've never been the same since. Now I am truly living. Now I am sober. I am at peace. I am fulfilled. Now I am free. Now I'm found. My God, my Savior, my best friend, my Lord, my Jesus, is alive. The tomb may be empty, but my heart is full. That's why the resurrection is of first importance. It wasn't written down for you and I just to check off on some church membership list and you're in like Flint. It was written down so that you and I would believe that through Jesus, God really can pick you up out of the dirt, wash away all of your sin, make you new again inside and out and do something beautiful with your life. That's why the resurrection is important. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. 
uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place, so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. 
Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.